welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, Carly Noon and Crystal DiNapoli join us to explain the connections between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander environmental and cultural practices and the behaviour of the stars and consider what must be done to sustain our dark skies and the information they hold into the future. Their book, Astronomy, Sky Country, explores how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the oldest scientists in human history. Many First Peoples regard the land as a reflection of the sky, and the sky a reflection of the land. Sophisticated astronomical expertise, embedded within the Dreamtime and Songlines, is interwoven into a deep understanding of changes on the land, such as weather patterns and seasonal shifts, that are integral to knowledges of time, food availability, and ceremony. Here's the host of the discussion, Readings Programming Manager, Christine Gordon. I'm delighted to be able to welcome you here on behalf of Readings, your favourite independent bookshop, and Kemp and Hudson, who are the publishers of this very fine book. Now, before we get going, asking particular questions of the authors of First Knowledges, Sky Country, I want us all just to take a moment out of our busy day. And I don't know what you've done with your day, but I've been running around, I've been to the supermarket, I've been to exercise, I've been answering emails, telephone calls, I've written a book review. But whatever I've been doing, I've been doing it on land that's not mine. I've been doing it on land that's been stolen from the First Nations people. And I reckon all of you here in this group have some sort of understanding of that already. That's why you're here. But I do want to say that in 2022, maybe we can all do better than just sending our respects out to the First Nations people. Perhaps we could all take this year in particular to stop and to listen to the First Nations people, to read their stories, to understand their poetry and song lines so that we can make Australia a better version of what it is already. I'm deeply humbled to be on land that's not mine, that's owned by someone else. And on behalf of all of you here, I'd like to send my gratitude out to all of those First Nations people. Talking of First Nations people, here in this hot little Zoom call, I've got Carly and I've got Crystal, both First Nations people, both Zooming in from different areas of Australia. Hello and welcome to you, Carly. Thank you so much for that acknowledgement, Christine. I'm actually crying. That was one of the best acknowledgements I've ever heard. Thank you so much for that. I am currently on Gumari country, Gumilari country. I found myself in the beautiful Warren Bungles National Park. If you are not familiar with this part of Australia, then I honestly cannot recommend it enough. It is probably one of my favorite places on, on the earth. It's a, a beautiful ancient volcano remnant and the land features are just phenomenal. And we also have a delightful array of a bunch of telescopes up here as well at the Sunning Spring Observatory. So, yeah, I'm feeling very, very, very blessed, very humbled while I'm, while I'm visiting. Kai, what, what a treat. What about you, Crystal? Whereabouts are you zooming in from? Hi, so um, yeah, I'm on Boomerang land in Melbourne. So I am not in beautiful Gomorrah country in the Warrabongle range. Neither am I seeing beautiful skies either. I am 
nice and rugged up inside <laughs> in Melbourne. <laughs> but I'm very, very excited to be here in this sort of virtual setting to see you all. And it's lovely because it, it lets me and Carly speak together because we did. Hmm. Unfortunately, we are we live states apart from each other. So we wrote a book and now we're doing this sort of stuff. But unfortunately, yeah, we are. Crystal, let's talk a little bit about this book. I know it's part of a series which has been edited by the wonderful Margot Neal, Sky Country by both of you. How did you two come together to write this book? How did Crystal and Carly become a unit? This is like a, I guess, like a weird experience as a first writer, I guess, where Carly and I, we're both astrophysics. Carly's doing a PhD. I'm in my honours degree. We are scientists. We are astronomers who really care about Indigenous knowledges. We're Aboriginal women. In my case, at least, Thames and Hudson reached out and, you know, offered up this beautiful pairing of putting Carly and I together to create the book in the series. I actually read about Carly before I got to meet her. That's like my little my little backstory with her. I read this ABC article. So I'm an astrophysics student, a proud Gomeroy woman, but who grew up off country. And all of a sudden, like I, I get this article in my newsfeed and all of a sudden there's this, this bright haired, green, planet tattooed Gomeroy scientist who's doing astrophysics, who's promoting Indigenous astronomy. And I literally was just like, wow, <laughs> like I, there is like, that's like essentially me in a few years. Like we, the coloured hair, just the similar experiences as well. A lot of that article was talking about Carly's experiences upbringing and in particular her hurdles with education. And so I remember reading that and being like, wow, like, this is amazing. She's made history as the first Indigenous woman to graduate with degrees in maths and physics. That's really inspiring. Indigenous astronomy, you know, I need to learn everything I can about it. Like I was really, really into the space at the time. So yeah, I know about Carly from the outside. I ended up getting to meet her because I met someone else in the research project. Carly, so there you were, and, and you both of you have got chapters in Sky Country where you talk about the sort of the journey, for want of a better word, of how you got to where you are. Carly, can you take us through just a snapshot, if you like, of the hurdles that you had to jump over, crawl under, whatever you had to do to get where you are right now? Yeah, absolutely. Some of the main hurdles, you know, that I think are relevant to both both my story and Crystal's story is our experiences with I'll start with poverty first. Poverty is something that affects a lot of Australians, whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous. But, you know, we know proportionally it's something that that does heavily affect Indigenous communities. For, For me growing up, it was the difference between me going to school or not, you know, having access to being able to physically get to school being able to take food with me to school, being able to have a uniform or a clean uniform. When you're struggling to put food on the table, having having a, a clean uniform is, is pretty low on the priority list. And so that was probably one of the first things that, one of the first barriers of just accessing life, you know, not even, not even having this incredible career that I've been able to have, but just to access the workforce, you know, to access education. Poverty is something that very much stands between you. And if if it's not the practical things like getting to school or whatever, it can also affect you in, in other more kind of subtle ways. And that's from people's perception on you. So this is kind of the second barrier that I think is, is kind of relevant to both of our journeys in that people certainly put 
particular expectations on you. I'm talking about a time before I had tattoos, before I had crazy colourful hair, (laughs) you know, before a lot of these things when I was just a child and literally just trying to, to get through when you are poor, when you you are Indigenous as well, because I am white appearing, I'm not visibly Indigenous, but of course the schools are very aware of, of who their Indigenous students are. And also when you don't necessarily have the family structure that can support you in your education and in your schooling as well, I found that a lot of my, my barriers were from teachers just having really low expectations on me. And what that basically meant is I wasn't allowed to do the courses or the classes that I wanted to do. I wasn't allowed to do the maths. I wasn't allowed to do the physics, even though I was very much capable of doing these things. And so it did keep me out of it during my schooling time. I ended up leaving school quite young. I had a lot of responsibility at home, which again is another really common thing for a lot of Indigenous youth. And it wasn't until I was a little bit older that I started really engaging in my own learning and seeking it out for myself, not depending on school. Crystal, I mean, you had to also in some ways go through some similar barriers and and you talk really openly about that in the opening chapter. I thought it was important, and I think Carly's quite similar, to highlight just how unfortunately common our stories are. So I grew up in an environment, I like to call it turbulent. I grew up in a house that was full of violence, drug and alcohol addiction. The norm for me each day was like trying to look after all of my my siblings. I have six and I'm the second oldest. And for much of my life, I was actually the the oldest sibling there. So I was parentified very young and I had my uh, parents who were had suffered a lot in their life, did not have the support to manage their own lives, let alone for their kids. I rarely got to go to school. When I did, I was very obviously other. So I would have matted hair, full of head lice, things like this. And um, uh, teachers would need to sit there for hours and go through my hair before I go to class or I couldn't go. Or uh, my clothes would always be dirty and I'd be bullied for them because kids, little kids don't understand (laughs) why I'm dirty but there's actually a huge background to it. And the thing is, I grew up in a neighbourhood on the side of my town where I feel like so many of us kids were sort of cast away. Like there's even primary schools on our side of town sort of to keep, like not to be pessimistic, but, you know, people who went to those schools were regarded as being feral. That's a word that still gets to me to this day. I know a lot of the kids that I grew up with unfortunately lived in similar circumstances who did not get to break the cycle. The vast majority of people I, I know family, friends I grew up with, they didn't get to go, finish high school, go to uni. And so I got really lucky in the way that a lot of things went really, really wrong in my life. And I described a few and I've tried to be light about it and not talk about it in a whole lot of detail, but it was really hard for me growing up that I didn't perceive a future. Like I, I couldn't imagine ever having a job or going to uni. In a couple of crucial moments, I had the right support, particularly usually from teachers who made a, a, a change to my life that helped me get there. And so now it's like, wow, go to university. I'm like an astrophysics graduate for my high school. That's apparently a big honour. Like I'm welcome back this year to meet with all of the other Indigenous kids like when I grew up, but I come back as a success story. And so it is, it is crazy because it's like I've achieved a lot. And I think a lot of people who meet me have no idea what it took for me to get there. But the other thing is they have no idea of the voices that aren't in the room the people who didn't get the chance to get to where I am and to get this type of platform. And so I feel like, especially for Carly and I being like true success stories, I feel like it's really important to highlight what a lot of us kids go through 
because a lot of kids in Australia are trapped in poverty or in these intergenerational cycles that are really hard to break. So it was nice to be able to go here, we're here, and I'm glad you finally see us. There's a lot of people you're not seeing though. I thought it was a really powerful way of opening up this book is just putting that sort of context about how it is that you came to be the experts on the night sky, but also what you had to do to get there. And I really appreciated it just that it really almost changed my reading of your entire book. And I guess I did that because even though intellectually, of course, we know about the difficulties of First Nations people here in Australia and it's absolutely appalling, but but to have these personal stories really I found incredibly humbling. And so I thank both of you for giving me that space and giving me that sense of belonging that both of you had. I learned so much about the night sky with this book. And I know that just immediately as we as you open up the first sort of pages of the book, that the first thing that we are taught is that in Aboriginal thinking, country is not just a land, it's a world view. It's more than the land that is expressed. The sky is reflecting the ground. Carly, can you talk a little bit more of that? I know that seems incredibly vast, but I want to sort of start wide and then zoom in if we can into, you know, the sky rivers, the moon halos, the seven sisters. Okay, so let's start with a word that you you said, reflection. I think this is a really great point to start off with. So one thing that we we often say is the land is reflected in the sky and the sky is reflected in the land. And as you read the book, I think that'll become more and more obvious. But when we think about, from a Camilla Ray perspective, there are so many places and people and important things that are up in the sky that we also connect to down here and vice versa. There was once a period in the dreaming where these two places, you know, the land and the sky, they weren't really separated. They were kind of more of this continuous environment. And so when, you know, our creative beings came down to this place and and created us and created all the things that we have around us, including the land, and when there was a time when that separation did occur, that did kind of change things, but the, the reflection was never lost. And even to this day, you know, that connection is still there, even though it's not something that, you know, we necessarily talk about a place that we go and visit in our earthly bodies, it's still very much connected to so many things that happen on on the land. And, And again, hopefully that comes through in the book. So if I could give a few examples, you know, I think, you know, you can't go past the dinner one, the celestial emu in the sky, and how much that reflects the behaviours and the actions of the the emu, the land emu, the dinner one on on the ground. Now, this can be seen in in lots of different things in that, you know, what's happening up in the sky, there is something that is affected here on the land. And when I say, you know, these things are connected, these spaces are connected, I don't mean it in a 
you know, in a in a spiritual kind of way or in an energy kind of way. I mean it in a literal physical kind of way. There, there is a lot more that is going on outside the walls of our houses and outside the boundaries of our town and the boundaries of our states and even the boundaries of our continent. And one of the main things that affects us down here is what's happening in the sky and our position within within our solar system, within our galaxy. And that's something that Indigenous people, not just Gamilaroi people, but Indigenous people all over the world and all through time are really, really good at noticing and documenting uh, and embedding that information. If the information relates to the land, if it relates to the sky, then what better way to store that information than in those places? And so when we talk about stories and and the documentation of the knowledge and the observations, that's where they go. That knowledge goes back to the sky or back to the land. And, And the way that we do that is through stories. And so, yeah, just coming back to that, that connected nature, you know, when, um, when we do say, you know, it, it is reflected, it, it's basically acknowledging that. It's acknowledging that what happens up there is affecting us down here. And then, of course, you know, we have we have our cultural places up in the sky as well. You know, we have our, our big sky river, we have our big sky camp, and we have our, our special people that we, we look towards as well, our creator beings and our ancestors. So before this event started, you know, when we were talking, I was saying to Carly and Crystal, Oh, there's this one section in the book. I was trying to find it before I have marked so much of your book, but I didn't mark this particular passage where you say go out and, and lie down on the ground and, and look up at the sky and you might see, you know, some bright stars. You might be able to identify some of them. But keep looking, stay there because as your eyes adjust, you'll start seeing more and more stars, and you'll start seeing, therefore, more and more stories. Crystal, I was very taken with this idea of the seven sisters, and one of the reasons that I want to draw attention to that particular story is because it's something that has been identified sort of with all First Nations people. Is that something that you can speak of? The Pleiades or the Seven Sisters have always had a really special spot for me. I can pinpoint the the moment the fast, my fascination for the night sky began. And it, it's this moment on Pengarin country back where I grew up, where I was having like an observation session with my mom and my older sister. And my older sister, I think, was just trying to annoy me because she was just saying that she could see shooting star after shooting star. And I had never seen one. And so she's sitting there on this trampoline. We're all lying back looking up at these beautiful dark skies. And she's like, oh, there's one. Oh, there's another. And I was like, I can't see any. And I was getting so frustrated. And so my mum was trying to point to then constellations that I could see. So I guess to try and like satiate a young child's curiosity. Yeah. And in particular, she was showing me all these different things that I was unable to see, but she did focus in particular on the seven sisters and how special they are and they're hard to see and how much they meant to her. Cause she, she really did care about the sky, but I definitely took it for granted as a kid. Like now it perplexes me. I'm like, mum, what were you doing? Like, what? <laughs> So anyway, the Seven Sisters have always been special. And then um, an opportunity arose for me to do a research project. And I really wanted to dive into the traditions surrounding them more because they are really important. They feature in the stories of not just Aboriginal Australians, but Indigenous people around the world have looked to this cluster of stars and have seen it as, you know, different things. But quite often we see this common theme of it being a group of young women. And so I was looking at all these stories right across the country. Some of my favourite things that I learned were about how, based on geography, how different the Pleiades could be regarded. 
So Gomorrah Traditions, so mine and Carly's mob, the country that she's on at the moment that I'm so envious of, they see the Seven Sisters or this group of sisters as a group of young women called Marae Marae or Mie Mie. And they're associated with the frost. There's a lot of beautiful stories which do describe it. Um, and they go into some astrophysics, which is exciting. But uh, mainly that, you know, they're associated with the frost. And the reason for this is that where they are in the sky, it changes throughout the year. In the winter, they are actually touching the ground. They, they're more set than being up above us. And so they are thought to be bringing the frost because they touch the ground when that frost arrives. They are these beings of ice. I think like non-sort of specific groups in the central desert, just from based off the resources I had, obviously they belong to communities, but I don't know the names, but these stories were talking about them being uh, associated as being beings of fire, which is so such a stark difference, but it was once again, noting their position and the changes in the environment across the year. And so in the summer, what's overhead of us, it is the seven sisters. They are beautifully overhead, bringing the heat for us. And so they use this calendar in that way. And then they also relate to different plant cycles as well. And the stories I thought were really beautiful. It's why I was sort of drawn to them. They tend to always have this theme of being a group of young women with some sense of camaraderie. Something always happens to them, very often at least. Particularly, I noticed that there was this common occurrence of some ill fate befalling the youngest of the sisters. But there's always this theme of that sister showing resilience and coming back or the sisters coming together to help her out. And yeah, the Pleiades are very special for a whole number of reasons. And we wanted to make sure to include some of those stories in our book. I just thought it was beautiful to read all of these stories. Thank you so much, Crystal, for telling us about that. The other section that I did fall in love with and just love even the expression is the moon halos. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So back maybe 2016, I did this research where you know, we had all of these accounts of lots of different mob talking about Moon Halo and talking about it with respect to stormy weather or rainy weather. And we really wanted to understand this from a physical perspective. That's our strength as well. You know, our strength is definitely that we're we're awesome, powerful Gomorrah women in us. But, you know, we have this, this awesome training in, in physics and trying to understand how things how things work and how things process. And so that was kind of what, what I was interested in. I wanted to know, you know, why do so many nations connect the appearance of moon halos? to the occurrence of stormy weather. And so I'm doing all this research into atmospheric physics and optical physics, and essentially what I found is that there's this whole system when a cold front comes in contact with a warm front, we all know warm air rises. Uh, So we get this warm front rising over this cold front. And this cold front, this is all the stormy weather's happening down here. We have this beautiful warm system up above. Well, it is warm. It's warmer compared to this cold system, but it also is cold enough to contain ice crystals. And as it gets pushed further and further up, more and more ice crystals start to form. Now, when these ice crystals are formed and as it gets pushed up, basically this cloud up here gets pushed along in a particular direction and it gets literally like thrown in that direction due to these really high velocity winds that are at this this kind of particular section of the atmosphere and so essentially what we see is these ice crystals they're they're going along in a particular direction and they're slowly being followed by this low pressure system 
Now it's actually the ice crystals in that that really fast cloud that produces the effect that we see that creates a moon halo. Now moon halos, the physics behind that, it's very, very similar to a rainbow. In fact, you can sometimes see rainbows in the halo, particularly if there's a sun halo. And something that I didn't know is that rainbows are actually, they actually are halos. They are circular, but of course we only see half of it. The horizon kind of cuts off, or the earth cuts off half of that that halo. I love that. The, The knowledge on how halos work, that was already kind of there, but it was this understanding of the fact that the clouds that produce this effect, the halo, they're often followed by this low pressure system which is of course the storms now in all of these stories they all talk about balu who is the moon man in oh, so in this Dora. is what i want to ask so here the this is a tremendously good story an easy story where you don't have to understand about cold fronts and winds and heat rising can you tell us about that carly yeah moon absolutely man. He's the moon man and and the moon man is often quite powerful and and a lot of stories we have associated to the moon man, it's him often kind of throwing his weight around and sometimes being a bit grumpy, but really at the end of the day, really trying to just keep mob in line and, and making sure that our actions reflect our values. And so there's this story of Balu and he... He hears of this uh, this person, this weapons maker, and he's also a um, a rug maker. His name's Morigu. Bali goes to visit Morigu one day, and he's heard all these rumors about Morigu about you know he's the best rug maker in you know across the land. And but the thing is, he doesn't share. He doesn't share his creations. He won't sell them. He won't give them away. He's he's quite greedy. Balu, he's not, he's not okay with this. And he goes to visit Morigu and he asks, you know, can I have a possum rug? They're beautiful. Of course, Morigu is like, no, no, can't have one. And Balu asks and asks and begs. He gets to the point where he's he's begging him, you know, it's so cold out there. I have nothing. Can you please help me? And again, Morigu is like, no, nah, they're mine. And so what Balu does is he he actually leaves, he creates a shelter out of a particular type of, of bark. It's this bark, this leopard, leopard tree bark that we still, we see Balu in that, in that bark. You'll probably see this tree very often now. I see it all the time. And basically he makes this shelter and then he calls for the rain to come. And so much rain comes that Morigu is actually completely drowned out along with all of his belongings. So really the, the, the basis of the story, the moral of the story is, of course, to, to be giving, to be sharing, to be compassionate uh, to your community. But there's also this little feature about Balu and his shelter. And that shelter is actually the moon halo that's, that represents the moon halo. It's just a beautiful story. Thank you so much, Carly, for sharing it. And maybe you can talk a little of this, Crystal, the Sky River. Unfortunately, if you are anywhere near Melbourne or a, a, a larger city, you're, you're unfortunately not going to probably have much it's success. It's going to be a bit of light pollution, isn't there? It's going to be a bit. So when we talk about the Sky River, I think um, something that's worth acknowledging about them is that the Sky River is something that we regard as like a dark sky constellation or at least it's home to them. And so dark sky constellations are a bit different from the ones that you're probably used to where you have your bright stars, you're linking them together and you're making some sort of image. 
In the Southern Hemisphere, the tilt of like our solar system in our galaxy, we're actually pointing towards the Milky Way, whereas the Northern Hemisphere is actually pointing out towards the universe. And so while they see a bit of the Milky Way, they do not get the view that we get in the Southern Hemisphere. And so we get the Milky Way, which is full of stars, yes, very bright, but also gas and dust, which actually blocks out the starlight from like for our human eyes. We can't, we can't see it. In these areas, these dark regions, we actually find home a lot of our dark star constellations. One of the most iconic is the emu in the sky. So of course we talk about the emu. It's such a beautiful feature and it does It does actually look like an emu. You see the emu head and the emu beak. But these are really delicate features. The fact that they're dark sky constellation means that they are unfortunately very, very sensitive to light pollution. They're much more than normal stars. And so it is a shame that we can't really go out tonight in metro areas and go see it because it's beautiful. And in my hometown, for now, I can still see it. If you do go to a dark space and you're trying to find the emu in the sky or where the sky river is, see if you can spot the Southern Cross. Because you are going to need to be in these dark regions for at least like 10 minutes, letting your eyes dark adapt. But at the start, you're going to be able to see some common features and you'll be able to see the Southern Cross. And it actually cuts through sort of like the uh, the neck of the emu. I encourage you to go out to these beautiful dark skies, get inspired. And, and that's why when we talk about it, we really try and paint a picture because we want like it's so much to talk about stars and everything be quite removed. But if you're growing up in a city and you've spent most of your time in a city, you are missing out on the things that Carly and I got to see every day that inspired us to take this type of career. In the book, we really try and paint the picture of you're going out and you're lying down and you are letting yourself take it all in and enjoy. So, yeah, get, get inspired. This is my experience of reading Astronomy, Sky Country. It starts off with the wonderful editor, Margot Neal, sort of taking us on a journey about why this series, that first knowledge is, is important. And then we get your story, Carly, and we get your story, Crystal. And then we go into some of the mythologies and some of the understanding about the way that the First Nations people see the world sky and why that's important for lots of reasons, why that's important for the farming, why that's important for community, why that's important for understanding. And then at the end, there's some brilliant stories, stories that you're going to be able to share at dinner parties and share at barbecues. And then at the very end, I think you do something actually quite inspirational but really unusual. And what I want our listeners to think about is how many times you might have read someone who says a letter or something that says, if you could write to your younger self, what would you say now, you know? But there's so many of those type of stories. But actually what Crystal and Carly do is they write to their future self And wait for this, listeners, wait for this. It's not terrible news. (laughs) Ali, can you tell me what was the thinking behind that? And can I also, on behalf of everybody that's going to read these beautiful pages, Crystal and Carly, thank both of you for doing so. Carly. Uh, Okay, so we get a lot of hope from the sky. Regardless of where you are, whether you're in a position like Crystal and myself, whether you're, you know, a casual stargazer or whether you you don't really have any connection to the sky at all, there's still so much hope that we put in in this place and and rightfully so you know unfortunately down here it's a bit rough <laughs> there's a lot going on down here and there's there's a lot that we have to deal with and there's a lot that we have had to deal with regardless of where you are and so 
you know, that's the same for us. We look to the sky and we look, we look for hope to the sky. I really wanted to express that, express the hope that we put in this place, but also paint a picture of what that that future could look like, what that that hopeful future could look like from an Indigenous perspective and what it would look like to move forward into the future, into space with Indigenous people leading the way. You know, that's my utopia. (laughs) Uh, That's where I want to be in a a few years. That's where I want to be now. (laughs) Um, So I just just really wanted to share that. I honestly believe that if there was any two women that could make changes happen, it would be you, Carly, and you, Crystal. Crystal, have you got any words about those sort of final pages as well? Yeah, I think Carly knows very well that 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 was like I think the hardest thing to do is to find a way to finish off the book. We really try and put forward tactics towards heading towards a future and in particular one of the chapters that I really cared a lot about writing was the Dark Skies chapter. So look forward to that. Um, but I, that's also something that I've gotten a lot of feedback from of people reading about sort of starting off with that description of lie down, look up, let yourself settle in, imagine that you're in this beautiful place looking up and experiencing everything that the night sky could show you. But then we talk about a lot of the issues that we're actually facing regarding light pollution and it's it's quite an insidious pollutant that people aren't aware of how damaging it is to everyone's health. And there's very serious and scary future, near future, regarding mega constellations and the population and colonisation, if you will, of our atmosphere, of space. I love the letter sort of painting the future that we want and I'm really hoping that people have been able to get some tips on how as as all the readers, all of us can come together and actually build towards that. Thank you both so much for coming together in a sense of freedom and friendship and knowledge to give us so many stories and so many other ways to understand Australia and to understand our skies. On behalf of everybody that's listening, we're so deeply grateful to you both and to all of those people that have taught you all of those wonderful women. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing your enjoyment. Yeah, I mean, you can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast at our website. We'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you.